Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a show about the Swift programming language and other Swift.org projects. My name's JP Samard. And I'm Jesse Squires. Uh, and today we're talking about concurrency, uh, and we have a special guest with us, uh, Chris Latner. Hey, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So uh, to get started here, do you want to talk a little bit about where all of this came from? Sure. So it's been a goal for Swift 5 to start discussions about concurrency in some form. Um, Swift 5 has a ton of goals ahead of it. Ted recently announced what what the goals are. The number one is ABI stability. And it's expected that ABI stability will take a lot of engineering time to build out. But it's also an interesting topic because it is mostly um, compiler engineering and not a lot of Swift evolution kind of topics. And so it felt like a good time to start long-term discussions that would end up shaping bigger efforts like, for example, concurrency. And so concurrency as a whole is not going to get into Swift 5, but the idea is to start having some of those discussions to get the ideas out there, shape the view of where Swift should go, and then in Swift 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and whatever, um, different pieces can be built out and can land. Um, um, so that's, I guess, why we're here. Um, that raised an interesting challenge for the core team, which was, okay, if you want to start something like concurrency as a topic and have a bunch of people discuss different aspects of it, how do you kind of guide the community? How do you make it so it's more, more or less structured instead of just completely chaotic? Oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? Because, of course, with uh, with Swift, we want something that that is a coherent um, collection of things that work well together. We don't just want a grab bag of different pieces, bits and pieces that don't fit. And so, um, I guess historically, I've been thinking about this a model involving actors and asynchrony for many years now. Um, in fact, I think that there's a really ancient doc in the Swift tree under um, docs proposals archive or something like that, talking about an earlier version of this model written way back before we even knew what memory model we were using. You know, were we using ARC or garbage collection? Were we using how the type system would work? It was really, really old. And so I've been kind of kicking around these ideas for a long time. And um, Ted suggested, okay, well, since you have some of these ideas, why don't you write it, write it down and make provide a starting point where um, we at least have one coherent design to start from. And that's not prescriptive of being the design. There could be other great designs that come out. And um, if so, that's cool. Um, and I guess my motivation is to change the baseline on um, what Swift ends up getting. And so I don't care if it ends up being this design, so long as it's at least as good as this design. <laughs> so yeah, so that, that's kind of where this all came from. And um, I've had a couple of days of spare time on my hands, so I ended up writing this epic document, um, which kind of got out of control. But it hopefully lays out a view of you know what Swift could turn into in the course of many years, because there's many years worth of work embodied there. Um, but the important thing to me is that it it goes in a consistent direction and it builds to something that's really great. And one of the problems with long-term design that you run into is if you just think about the next step you run into it 
the problem of falling into a local maxima instead of um, thinking about where you're going and having and how it all fits together. Yeah, and this is clearly super uh, forward-looking with um, stuff that probably we won't see for many, many years, um, but it really is kind of setting a North Star for, um, like you mentioned, one possible approach. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I really do hope that other people put the time in, and if there's other really good models that make sense, we should really debate those as a community because, again, I think we all want the best thing to happen, and um as it says in title, it's one possible approach. That doesn't mean that it's the only one or even the best one. Right. Um, but there's still a lot of possibility for uh, some of the first parts of these stages to uh, to actually come in the foreseeable future, in, in, in the next uh, few months even maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, things like the async await side of things. So on, on the one hand, um, this is pretty open-ended. On the other, uh, if this, if anything like this is going to happen at all, I, I think uh, it's clear that something needs to start pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess that's the other half of where this this came from. Um, so I've been antagonizing for some time to get async await into Swift, and the concern from folks on the core team was that they didn't want to add async await if it did not dovetail properly with the global overarching plan for what concurrency looks like. And async await is an interesting one because, um, again, in the context of Swift 5 goals, there's not a lot of spare engineering time laying around. But um, async await is a pretty straightforward and well understood language extension. And um, there's some implementation challenges with it, but it's much smaller than um, most of the, the big features that are going on in Swift today. So if the community agrees that it's the right way to go, there's actually a pretty high probability that it could get into Swift 5. You know, nothing, nothing is taken for granted here, but um, I think that would be really fantastic because um, async APIs are really important, and I think the server community would benefit in particular a lot from it. Um, but we can, we can come back to that when we talk about that section if you want. Well, we can probably just dive into that section now. Um... Given that it's it's part of the 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 first section of this whole manifesto, um, now obviously the async await the keywords uh, that you can use in Swift, but it it's much more than just keywords, right? Uh, it also implies a certain um, amount of of runtime considerations as well in terms of how this asynchronicity is implemented. Uh, especially since so far Swift has mostly kind of pushed that out to the library level with GCD and, and with other uh, thread-based libraries. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm curious for, for just really the, the whole pitch of how you could see async await uh, kind of fitting in and playing out for the next few months, say, assuming that um, the community just gives a massive thumbs up on this and implementation starts tomorrow. You know, what are the steps to get this in? Sure. So um, the so I guess backing up one step for folks that are not familiar with async await, um, the the general idea here is that you're is that you take if you're a Swift programmer, you've seen completion handlers. And a completion handler goes off and does something, usually on a background queue, and then it notifies you when it's done by calling your completion handler. Mm-hmm. The problem with completion handlers is that they are really awkward to use. They're also really awkward to define your own asynchronous function with. And so 
um, the Node.js, the C-sharp community, the, lots of communities have gone through patterns where they've had these callback handler patterns. And um, I guess several years now ago, C-sharp introduced this idea of async await, which basically allows you to write straight line code that looks just like normal code, even though it's implicitly asynchronous. And basically, instead of calling a completion handler, you say await on a function call to say, hey, uh, this function calls asynchronous. If it goes off and blocks to go do something, just implicitly suspend the function right here and you know, hold on to what I'm doing. And then when it completes, just keep running, running in line. And so this makes the code that you end up writing a lot cleaner and a lot easier to reason about. And when you have error handling, when you have control flow and other things going on in that function, it makes a huge difference. Now, if you look at async await implementations, oh, and, and I guess since C-sharp introduced async await, it's gone and kind of taken over the world in its own, own way, and it's been adopted into tons of other different languages, including JavaScript and Python and lots of other super popular languages. Even the C++ community is trying to figure out um, their take on it right now. Um, the, um, and if you look at, look at all these implementations, they, they have different kinds of approaches. And notably, the C-sharp implementation really ties into the model, the idea of futures. So futures are a, futures also known as promises, are one uh, pretty common pattern for dealing with asynchronicity on their own, where you say, go off and do this work, and um, instead of giving me the result back immediately, give me back a future, and then when I need that result, I can, I can wait for the future to finish. Um, and this, this is a nice pattern. This has been widely used. Lots of Swift programmers use this um, through uh, third-party libraries. Um, but the problem with going down this approach is it, is it bakes in the idea of futures into the language model. In C-sharp, they're called tasks. And this really privileges one concurrency privilege, uh, primitive over, um, over many others. And there's lots of other patterns that people use, including channels. And, and it would be really unfortunate for Swift to kind of make futures be uh, a first-class part of the language. Now, if you, if you look at how async await works, the important piece of it is not really the future. It's the suspension of the current flow of code that's running. And so the proposal that Joe and I worked on, and incidentally, I credit Joe for the idea of separating futures out of the design. He, he was a strong proponent of doing that. Um, but the async await proposal is saying, OK, let's just do the language side of this. And so the language side of this adds a couple of new keywords, the async and await keyword. But they work just like the error handling model does, where you have a function that can be throws. Well, now it can also be async. And instead of using try to say this function can throw, you now say await, saying that function can suspend. And if you do that, you get an interesting design where um, futures are no, no longer part of the model. They're something that gets pushed out into a library, you know, potentially a standard library someday. Um, and they can be one of many different concurrency designs that are built on top of the core language model. And so getting back to your original question, the, the really cool thing about this is you can think about the async await proposal as being just syntactic sugar for completion handlers. It doesn't actually change uh, dispatch, or you could use it with pthreads. <laughs> you can use it with anything you want, and it doesn't um, uh, pre-assume a specific concurrency model under the hood.
Cool. So that makes it a good first step then to yeah. to get this part in. And, and that's why it could be added to Swift 5. And that's also why it makes it relatively small. Um, it could be added to Swift 5, make all the asynchronous APIs that are currently using completion handlers a lot nicer. And people would continue to use uh, dispatch plus async await instead of using dispatch plus completion handlers. Right. And in what cases would, like, what would be the benefits of using one over the other? Like when you have both of these tools at your disposal. You're talking about dispatch and async await? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, you can think of them as solving different problems. And so they're not directly comparable like that. Um, dispatch is really about uh, deciding how to carve up your program into different concurrent entities. Right? Mm -hmm. so you, you say, I have two, two tasks that are going off and I want to put blocks onto them. Um, that you're, you're thinking about what is the unit of concurrency that is running. Mm -hmm. Async await is more about saying, I have a function and it may not return immediately. Now, right. it, if it suspends, then I have no idea how. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so that's kind of an implementation detail of that API. And it will probably be implemented under the hood with dispatch. But um, but as far as the, the language model goes, is it just says, okay, well, it's, it's just something that might not return very quickly. And so if you're dealing with you know anything in the, the real world or, or dealing with anything dealing with IO, for example, this kind of thing comes up where you say, okay, go load something off the web. Well, it'll come back in a few hundred milliseconds. You don't want to block the current task waiting for it. And so that's something that makes sense to use async await for. Mm -hmm. um, if you're saying, I'm writing an application and I have a background thread that I need to do a bunch of number crunching on, then that's where you use dispatch. Yeah, um, it's it looks like a, a great addition to the language, especially when you consider uh, how much the compiler can actually help you in ways that um, the current completion block approach really cannot. For example, it's very common for a completion block to return both a result and an error, and both are optional. It's returning essentially a, a tuple of, of both, and then uh, you kind of need to exhaustively check to see, well, what case am I in? And of course, you can use something like a result type, which um, uh, kind of type in a type safe way codifies um, how it should be used, but it's still very much opt in. Whereas um, what I like about this approach is by being able to combine async, await, uh, try, throws, um, you can actually codify all this directly in the API rather than in uh, documentation and in usage conventions. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that one of the one of the reasons that one of several reasons that the the Swift standard library hasn't picked up a result type yet is the most common use for a result type is in asynchronous functions and promises and things like that. And if we do provide a model like this, that use goes away. You just don't have to do it. You can use the standard, you know, you can throw an error, you can return a value. You don't have to box things up in a result type anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and again, in your uh, point earlier to kind of not put too much weight behind um, a direction that will ultimately be abandoned later in, in the cycle, um, it really makes sense to look at it holistically like this, even many years into the future. Right. Well, and I think that with using futures as an example, I mean, I think many languages have gone through a cycle of evolution. And I guess Swift sort of falls into this camp too, but where it starts out, you have a language, you have some currency primitives. Um, futures are something that 
everybody's now familiar with. And so somebody builds a library or in the case of Swift, there's probably 15 of them. <laughs> but so features become super well known. Um, completion handlers and asynchrony get implemented without language support. And so they get something like the completion handlers that we're familiar with. Um, and then the, the, the community realizes that async await's a better solution. And so then async await gets added built on top of futures because futures are what everybody has already standardized on. I think that one of the things that we're coming at and look at this from is saying, okay, well, futures got added early because there's no other option. <laughs> if async await gets added as a first class language concept, you know, quote unquote early, right, because futures haven't been adopted into the core Swift design, um, then maybe that pushes down futures much lower. So then instead of being the most common thing that people think about all the time, it is now a uh, unusual thing that people reach for when they're solving specific problems. And if it ends up where the balance of power becomes most people just use async await directly and relatively few people use features, then that's where it doesn't make sense to build features into the language because just as many people solving problems may want to use channels. And it would be weird to build one but not the other and you don't want to build everything in, of course. And so I think this gets to the design goals of Swift where we're trying to figure out the inherent primitives in the language, the things that really underlie the conceptual higher level abstractions that people want and figure out how to bake just that into the language to keep the language simple and also allow really powerful libraries to be built on top because we don't know what concurrency abstraction somebody might want in 10 years. And so if they have the right underlying implementation hooks to implement their cool new idea, then they can do that. But if it's too hard-coded to solve one specific abstraction, then maybe they can't. Right. And you bring up um, a good topic, actually, on on the topic of channels. Uh, and I, when I think of channels, especially in Go, uh, which you know, really uh, popularized them, I guess, um, kind of the whole point is that it's not just kind of kick off a task and then uh, get told when everything completes and then you go on from that point, there's really this concept of kind of interactivity, I guess, um, where messages can be sent in the channel even before kind of the main task completes. And async await doesn't necessarily seem to uh, make that case simpler in the Swift side, but maybe that's where the uh, subsequent parts of the manifesto come in um, when when talking about task-based concurrency. Yeah, I, th I think that's more closely related to the actor design, which is kind of the second step. So, all right. Well, Jesse, do you have anything else on uh, on the async await side of things? Uh, no, uh, I mean just one comment. I uh, I I like how this addresses the the issue of you know like currently completion handlers combined with error handling is a very awkward experience in Swift. And like you mentioned, you can do this with a result type. And I think there's been, like what we discussed, lots of discussion on how to potentially solve this by either introducing result types or some kind of like throwing completion blocks or something. But I think this is a, a much cleaner way to do things. And uh, yeah. So let's talk about actors a little bit, which is kind of a higher level, I guess, uh, representation of of how to manage concurrency beyond just these two keywords. Um, you want to give us the the short pitch on that? Sure. So first I'll talk about what actors are, and then I'll talk about why I think they're cool. <laughs> um, so actors, you can think of an actor as being 
kind of like a class, but also a dispatch queue that are tied together. And so you can define an actor by just saying actor A, curly brace, and then define a bunch of state and methods and other stuff like that in, in the body of the actor. What that means is that you're defining, because you're defining a queue, when you, ins when you create an instance of your actor, you're getting an instance of that queue as well. And so every time you create an instance of your actor, you're creating another unit of concurrency. And so if you think about um, you're building a network server, every time a network connection comes in, you would create a worker instance, and that worker instance would be an actor. That worker instance is completely independent from all the other tasks. And so the pattern that you would see is just say, create an instance of my worker actor and call the go method on it, <laughs> right? And so this gives you a nice way to think about how you design your applications and also um, gives you the, um, you know, the, the functionality that Dispatch does where it is actually creating and setting up the units of concurrency and allowing you to design and carve up your application. Now, actors are um, also interesting and cool because they have a long academic background and a lot of uh, uh, crazy theory that prove lots of cool things about them. For example, they can reduce deadlock. They have um, lots of guarantees about how your applications can scale out and work well in practice. Um, I don't really want to talk about that right now, <laughs> but the to me, they're really compelling because they give you something that programmers can think about and reason about as a unit of abstraction in their program. Like, so you, they, they correspond to things often. So you say, okay, well, I have, like in the case of the network server, you say, I have a connection that comes in and I have a worker thing that works on it. If you say, I have, um, I'm going to parallelize some image processing algorithm over four cores, then I will have four processor, image processor actors instanced and created, and they will all crunch on their little piece of the image, things like that. Um, if you if you have a UI application, you have, for example, your document or your, your model, you can say, okay, well, one actor owns the model. And then um, if I have a multiple document interface kind of app, then I just create multiple different instances of that actor to get multiple documents. So they provide a nice way to think about how to design your application. But then if you start scaling out, you start facing all, all the normal problems that concurrency brings. And I think this gets to the bigger design trade-offs when it comes to thinking about concurrency, because I think we've probably all faced some kinds of concurrency bugs. Either you miss a lock and then you get a race condition or corrupted memory, or you get um, performance problems because you have too much synchronization, too fine grain locking, stuff like that. And the real question facing the Swift community is how do we provide an abstraction such that we have a safe and um, high performance concurrency abstraction that people can use and that works out of the box by default instead of providing a long list of pitfalls that you have to get over. Right? And if you think about one of the cool things about Swift is that it's been specifically designed to be easy to get into with a low learning curve, but then you can continue to master it as you go on. And we want a concurrency model that reflects the same kind of values. Yeah, this is super exciting. You know, what comes to mind as uh, previous tools that uh, especially Apple programmers have been able to to pick from in the past are um, NS operation queues and things like uh, the the tasks that you, you can enqueue on something like that. But this is obviously a lot more conceptually powerful. One question that comes to my mind, just keeping in mind the 
uh, transition path, kind of getting to this long-term vision here is um, is step-by-step kind of how we get there. And one thing that would make a lot of sense to do would be, say, to expose a lot of things that are behaving as actors today, but that can't be represented as actors in the language, and kind of creating actors to to better represent them. Much like, you know, we've had uh, the ability in Swift to create classes that represent uh, things with identity to basically take that same concept and uh, use this actor model to to model things like a network connection, like uh, processor cores, like threads, uh, but using the existing kind of low-level primitives, not necessarily creating an actor from scratch, but using an actor-like interface to re-expose these things that were, were previously tightly coupled. So is that something that you think could be done with with that approach? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different axes to that. Um, one is, if you think about the... Um, you have an existing application you're using dispatch queues. How do you get it to start using actors and taking advantage of their capabilities? And um, one of the nice things about the proposed model is that you can move it gradually one one piece at a time. And so if you have a dispatch queue that you're creating for yourself, you can turn that into an actor, pull all, all the stuff that it works on together in that. And I think that, that you can do that process one step at a time. And every time you do that, your application just gets better. <laughs> Right, so this is kind of the ideal the ideal model for app migration, where it's opt-in, there's no pressure to do so, but when you do, um, your app just gets better. The second piece is, so the model of talking to an actor is that it is purely asynchronous. And so actors, because they're cues, the way you get an actor to do something is you send it an asynchronous message, and then that can produce more asynchronous messages, or you can do the equivalent of a dispatch sync as well. Because of that, you end up getting these graphs of actors that are all talking to each other and sending messages. Um, that graph ends up looking like <laughs> pretty much anything you want to talk to that is asynchronous can be modeled as an actor. And so if you're talking to a network service, for example, that that service, the cloud service, could be modeled as an actor and could look like an actor. And so that kind of smells and feels a lot like how we import objective C APIs into Swift. And if you think about if you think about the way that that Swift imports objective C APIs, often it if you talk about something simple like sine and cosine, it imports it directly and there's an obvious one-to-one mapping of what's going on. In other cases, the importer is doing a significant amount of work to transform the API. And so one example is that that is um, APIs using NSR, for example, they get mapped into using um, the throws mechanism in Swift, as of Swift 2. And so you can imagine the exact same kind of transformations where you say, hey, okay, well, here's a um, gRPC description or some other descriptor of uh, the API prevented by a cloud service, and you could have an importer for that so that you could just say import that thing, and now you just get the API, and it looks and acts just like an actor. And because cloud services are typically highly asynchronous, this would map really directly. That's something that would be really cool because it would give you a standard way of of looking at and dealing with these APIs. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, exactly how this happens, I guess, has yet to be sketched out, right? Uh, in terms of having some sort of translation layer to go from legacy, um, so to speak, legacy models for uh, task-based operations to 
something that's representable by an actor. And you mentioned going from a gRPC spec and say code generating uh, an actor interface to it. Um, so is this something that you'd see kind of community tools being built to um, to generate something that maps to an actor interface or something that would need to live in the compiler? Um, I think I think it depends a lot on the details that haven't been figured out. And to reemphasize, this is a couple of years away at the the earliest. Um, so I, I guess I don't know if it matters so much whether it is external or built into the compiler. It's open source, so anybody who could build something externally in principle could build something that's part of the compiler. Um, I think that the, the question really comes down to what should the workflow be for the developer? Are there standards that we want to embrace? Um, in the case of uh, the Codable design, for example, Codable out of the box can talk to JSON, but you need a third party um, I mean, it's part of the Swift Protobuf project, but you, you need to use a, a separate package to be able to use codable into protobufs, for example. Um, so all those kinds of design traps could be made. It probably depends a lot on how widely used a specific thing is and a lot of other design details that are just not understood yet. One thing regarding the uh, this kind of like importing behavior, I think... The manifesto mentions, uh, at least for the this async await case, Objective-C APIs with completion blocks could be imported in a way that, you know, just like the error handling uh, is imported from Objective-C. Are there other cases where like Objective-C APIs would actually be imported in a way that they appear as actors or? Um, I haven't really thought about it. I think that there's some some cases where it could be interesting to do so. Um, a lot of the UI um, toolkits at Apple, for example, mm -hmm. all work on the main thread. And so I speculate a little bit about how it could be interesting to define a main thread actor mm. so that there's always a singleton actor that is, you know that by putting your code on it, it will be run on the main thread, and therefore you can eliminate a bunch of different common error considerations, mm -hmm. you know, bugs that can happen. There may be other places where it makes sense to do that. Um, I haven't thought too much about that. There's a few considerations in here uh, for um, ARC, uh, and especially when we start talking about actors that, uh, unlike async await, uh, which you described, does not actually make any decisions in terms of the asynchronicity implementation, actors would necessarily have to. So are there things that you can benefit from at the language level or compiler level, runtime level, from having a model that is um, very clearly defined, such as actors would be, to perform certain optimizations, like having ARC retain release counts not be atomic in certain cases? Uh, I mean, it's quite speculative, but I, I believe it is possible. So the... The interesting thing about ARC, and one of the, the legitimate complaints people have about ARC is that um, when the ARC optimizer doesn't remove the operations, the, the reference count operations, they can be kind of slow. Kind of slow is not, you know, it depends on what your baseline is. And an atomic increment is on the order of 20 or maybe 100 cycles, depending on the processor and depending on what's going on. So that's a lot if you compare it to an add, but it's very little if you compare it to, for example, acquiring a mutex or something like that. Um, the payoff, 
is that if the compiler can reason about and know what the concurrency boundaries are in an application, at least in a better way, that you can start saying, okay, well, even when the compiler can't completely eliminate an arc operation, it could strength reduce it down from being an atomic operation down to a non-atomic one, thereby taking that you know 20 cycle atomic increment down to a one cycle non-atomic increment, and that could be a significant performance win. Now, the challenge with that is that um, the introduction of actors does not necessarily mean you're eliminating all the other concurrency models. <laughs> so it's almost certain that we're going to have programs running around with actors and GCD queues in them. And so the compiler will still have to be conservative when it doesn't know what code does. And so the, the question is, is how much is the information actually useful given the existence of uh, other code floating around? And that we just need to get a little bit closer to to understand. Yeah, but it's still nice to think that um, this opens the door for at least considering this, um, whereas previously it's it's more or less impossible to try to do this without a more strongly codified model. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this is an example where concurrency is really important for the programmer model. It's also important for the tools. The compiler is one of them, but there are other tools that can benefit from it as well, including debuggers and other things like that. As it turns out, the the Apple tools have really great understanding of dispatch queues already. And so a few years ago, we introduced the ability to get a logical stack trace across dispatch queues following a block from queue to queue to queue. And things like that should transfer fairly directly into actors. And when you do that, now not only do you get the queue, but you actually get like the name of the actor and you get a lot more semantic information about what was going on and what the intention was. You've mentioned uh, GCD a few times, and this is, I mean, GCD is, is a Darwin-only API. There's Corelib's dispatch, which is lovely. It's a re-implementation on top of libp threads, I think. And with concurrency stuff like this, you really start to see uh, platform-specific um, differences, right? Is that something that you've thought about uh, when designing this? Uh, where do you think um, uh, this is going to go? So I guess there's a couple of different ways you could look at that. So um, I think Dispatch as it stands is a pretty close match to what actors need from the runtime. There are some some mismatches um, that I talk about in the proposal, but they could be presumably fixed and improved in Dispatch. Um, on the other hand, you could say that if you were to run on an Amiga or something, <laughs> um, well, you don't need to use Dispatch as the underlying model. You need to provide this same behavior that the language would expect. And so um, in principle, somebody could implement the, the abstractions with whatever Windows APIs or whatever other concurrency abstraction is best and most optimized for a given platform. And if you run on bare metal, for example, on an embedded system, you'd have something that looks very different because you're not talking to a kernel thread scheduler and things like that. So um, the, there could be many different ways to implement it, but I think that it's really important that it works gracefully in the Apple ecosystem and it has to work well with the kind of existing dispatch stuff. But down the road, if somebody doesn't have the constraints of wanting to work with those APIs, then using a different implementation that may be faster, better, more optimized for the the kernel they're running on could definitely make sense. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. I I hadn't really looked at it like that, where uh, really as long as the the end result um, contract is is produced, it doesn't really matter what the implementation is. Even if the implementations like core API would be different on different platforms or have slightly different semantics, as long as you expose the same common subset, you should be okay. 
Yeah, just to clarify a bit, so you're suggesting that the the underlying implementation may be different per platform, but these kind of primitives exposed in the language would be consistent across. Yeah, I think that's possible. Now, Dispatch does run well on Linux, for example. A mm-hmm. lot of people have put a bunch of work into making that happen, so I don't see any reason you couldn't use Dispatch as the underlying technology for other platforms. Um, but I'm just saying that's not clearly required to be the way it's implemented. Are there risks there for like potential uh, behavior differences between Darwin and CoreLibs Dispatch? So I think that it, it depends a lot on how the ultimate model ends up getting hmm. really nailed down and how many guarantees are made. So Dispatch, for example, has the um, one of the designs. One one of the design decisions that Dispatch folks made many years ago was to have uh, Dispatch. So when when you're on a Dispatch queue, you call some some random API. Maybe it's written in C, and so you have no idea what it is. It's some it's twenty year old code. Um, you run into the problem of it could actually end up blocking the thread that it's running on. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not careful, and if you have a really simple runtime implementation, that will just take down <laughs> the, that, that runtime thread until that thing gets unblocked, right? And if you, if you say, okay, well, dispatch has figured out I have four threads because I have four cores, one of them is blocked, that means I'm only able to utilize three out of the four uh, processors on my system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so dispatch is a lot more sophisticated than that. What it actually does is it has a mechanism to... Uh, recognize and adapt when its threads get um, blocked. And so it will scale up the number of threads, creating new kernel threads to to try to adaptively figure out how much work is, um, you know, how many tasks can be run effectively on the system at a given time. That's kind of the magic of dispatch. Um, now that, that design has trade-offs, and if that's part of the guaranteed model, then that would be something that other people have to implement. On the other hand, if a simpler model is picked, then you know, maybe not necessarily. And so a lot of that depends on the runtime model that would be backing the actor system and the guarantees it provides. And um, this is, this would be one of the situations where even if a guarantee is not documented, if it's just implemented in a specific way, people will come to depend on it. Mm-hmm. And so it will be basically part of the part of the, the contract that real world code depends on anyways. And so we need to be very careful about how that gets defined and built. And that's one of the reasons that this is Probably Swift 6 at the very earliest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so then uh, if you went down a certain path and then there were potential issues changing the implementation later and likely uh, changing some of that implicit behavior that people may have been depending on would be, that wouldn't be uh, a possibility, really. Right, and, yeah. and this is this is true of pretty much any API implementation, sure. right? Where, if you ship an API, you document that it it has this behavior, but there's some other cases that you don't document, and it beha- you know handles errors in these specific ways, or it does you know it, it calls these callbacks in the specific order. People can start to depend on that implicitly, and that you're accidentally signing up to provide that <laughs> behavior. And if you want to change that down the road, you may end up in a compatibility problem where. Um, you know, the existing applications don't work, and you can go argue with them and tell them that they uh, are depending on behavior you never <laughs> promised, and they right. will say, "Well, I'm not, I'm not maintaining my code anymore. If you mm-hmm. want to break it, go ahead." But mm-hmm. you know, 
And it's the typical problem of vending APIs. Mm -hmm. So this would be similar, and that's one of the reasons why it makes sense to to really think these issues out and build something that's really great. But again, coming back to it, I, I, I see no reason why GCD couldn't be the underlying technology on Linux, for example. Um, it, it seems like it's perfectly well-suited there. Um, your manifesto goes on to talk about uh, the potential of opting into more reliable uh, contracts for actors, right? Reliability through fault isolation, uh, you call it. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So one, one of the pieces of actors that I didn't, I didn't dive into is that they, um, as, as proposed, the model gives you pretty strong um, guarantees to not have shared state that is mutated by multiple actors at once. And so the idea is that if an actor, you, you can think about actors as um, carving up your application into units of concurrency, so like a thread, and then having all the data that that thread works on be guaranteed to be isolated to that thread. And so that means that if you have actor A and actor B, actor B isn't changing actor A's data. <laughs> This gives you a bunch of guarantees that lead to more scalable and reliable programs. But one of the problems that Swift has always had is that certain things will just kill your app. And so if you have, uh, you force unwrap an optional, for example, or you have an array out of bounds error, the runtime will just say, hey, your app did something bad, boom, it's gone. Right? There's a bunch of reasons for this, which I kind of explain the manifesto, and I think it's the right design. But the problem is, is that killing the entire app is really problematic for certain things. Right? So you don't want to lose user data. If somebody's been working on a document for a long time and haven't saved it, then you don't want to lose their progress. Um, and so there, there's really a great desire to have the ability to have uh, some amount of recovery when a bad thing happens. And so because actors give you the ability to isolate the state that each thread is working on, it gives you some interesting guarantees where you can say, okay, instead of killing the entire process, the entire application, I'm just going to kill a specific actor. And once you do that, now you can say, okay, well, this worker task died, but the actual, you know, the meat of the application is somewhere else. I can still save it and do an emergency recovery kind of a um, approach. Um, this composes really well based on the basic guarantees that actors give. Um, and so it seems like a great opportunity to do that. The major challenge that you have to deal with then is you have to deal with, um, okay, well, if an actor goes down, what do you do about it? And inevitably the design will want to feature creep into um, having error recovery handlers and all the other things that you'd want to build into that. And the good and bad thing about that is that you know, the bad thing is that adds a bunch of um, APIs to the standard library, and, you know, that's complexity, and that will need to be defined. Um, the good thing about that is that that complexity is actually really small, and the design pattern that this gives you is you say, okay, well, when I'm defining my actor, my actor has an init method. In the init method, just tell the standard library what to do if the actor fails. Right. <laughs> right? It's really simple, and it gives you a really good place to do that, and it makes logical sense, right? Versus scattering recovery code everywhere through your application. And so um, I think that this will build out really nicely. And in practice, it will lead to really maintainable and uh, beautiful code. Yeah, one thing that's proposed here uh, with regard to this reliability um, is that potentially this reliability uh, keyword, uh, but all of this work in general, is this something you see that could come 
after uh, actors are just in initially introduced, or does this all kind of have to uh, happen at the same time? I, th I think it could absolutely be added as a second step or third step in this case. Mm -hmm. um, now, one of the design questions is, should reliability be separable from actors or not? Mm. And so you could get a simpler model if you say that all actors are reliable just by design. Mm -hmm. um, it means that there's a little bit higher upfront cost to that, uh, to, to defining an actor, but um, that means that there isn't a distinction between a reliable actor and a non-reliable actor. Right. right. So you have fewer choices you have to make. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of one of the trade-offs that I think we need to talk about and figure out how that balances out. Uh, what are the... I mean, I guess that's just a matter of how much you want to impose on uh, clients, on how much you want to impose on programmers uh, uh, using this. Right. Uh, so if, if you think about um, if I have an actor and it has a, um, a, a conceptual getter on the actor that says, give me some property out of it, mm -hmm. now that, that, that getter is asynchronous. And so if some other actor is calling it, that means it needs to do an await to get the result mm -hmm. using the async await mechanics. Um, if that actor, if the actor I'm waiting for crashes, what <laughs> happens? Right? Well, you don't just want the, the program to deadlock. What, you, what you'd want in that case is for that getter to throw an error. Mm -hmm. And so that means that in a reliable actor, if, if it said, hey, I want to be reliable, either because that's the only option or because they've opted into that, then all of these uh, you know, getters or the actor functions that return a value um, should be marked throws. Right. So that's kind of additional requirements to put on it. Now, that's not that big of a deal depending on how the design of async await shakes out. Mm -hmm. And so um, if it turns out in, in the context of async await, one of the design questions is, should async just imply throws? Mm -hmm. The logical idea here is you say many of the things that are async are, for example, I.O. And so I.O. not only is it asynchronous, but it can also fail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so many of the things that are, will be async will also throw anyways. And you get a simpler system if you just say, okay, well, a function could be normal, it could be throwing, or it could be async. And if it's async, it is also throwing. Mm -hmm. right? There's a ladder. The other way to spin it is to say, okay, well, a function could be normal, and it can opt into throwing, and or it could opt into async. Mm -hmm. And so it can have any of any of the four by four or the two by two matrix of um, combinations there. So it kind of really dovetails back to that, and I think that is something that we can look at by getting more data about how async is used in practice and, and just kind of resolving that mm -hmm. swift evolution. Would it, uh, would it make sense to have, uh, so like another possibility if uh, reactors, or sorry, if actors are reliable by default and thus all async methods uh, throws or have the potential to throw errors, um, like you just said, then would it make sense to have that as the default and then maybe some annotation to opt out of that behavior and say like, oh, everything is uh, that's async uh, throws by default, but if you had this annotation, then, you know, like the escaping and non-escaping closures uh, kind of scenario where you could opt out of that throwing behavior. Yeah, we could absolutely look at models like that. And and that's kind of the idea of a manifesto mm -hmm. document is it's not 
a really concrete proposal for how all the mechanics work. It is just a sketch that is detailed enough to be plausible so that people can understand how it fits together and they can they can look at it and they can say, ha ha, that piece will not work. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because it, it, it's kind of trying to trying to explain it with enough detail that um, while there's still a lot of wiggle room in the design, there's a lot of options that need to be evaluated. It's clear that at least one of them will will work. And then it's simply a matter of saying, okay, well, if we believe in the general the general vision, if we um, believe it can be done, then it's a matter of take each piece at a time and really nail it down, really uh, work through all the details and make sure that each piece is as polished and awesome as possible. And I think the async await is kind of entering that phase where it's really well understood. Mm-hmm. It's the first piece. It has its own proposal, which is linked to from the manifesto. And that's a lot more detailed than the level of detail that you would see in a manif- manifesto. Mm-hmm. And when that gets done, incorporated, if if the community likes it and, and goes with it, then, you know, if actors become the next thing of the people that, that make sense, and if that is the right direction to go, then um, we should do the exact same thing, where it comes down to nailing down exactly the runtime behavior, exactly the you know, is reliability part of it or not? All of those questions then really come to the fore and become really important to, to shake out. Do you think with this concept of reliable actors and, and throwing um, actor methods that uh, you'll get this sort of distributed graph of actors that are all interdependent and that, say, if one of them violates its contract, that it has to bubble up and basically tear down the entire application? <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Well, so so there's a couple of different ways that it can that you could build that distributed graph out. So one of the things that I should have emphasized is that actors are a, um, it's, it's a design that has existed for many years. I think that the theory on them started back in the 70s. Languages like Erlang have picked them up and used them to build large-scale, reliable, distributed um, applications. ACA is a more re- recent, and uh, the Scala community has a framework called ACA. It's more recently adopted actors, I think, as of 2006-ish, and they've worked really well. I mean, large projects like Apache Spark, for example, are all built on top of this, and it's well known for being for doing large-scale data crunching. And there's in, because of that, there's interesting design patterns that come out of this. And if you think about if you think about how languages and frameworks and communities in general dovetail, a language will end up providing some 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 capability, like the guard statement, <laughs> right? Frameworks will then adapt to be able to take advantage of that because the shift in power from having only if statements to having the guard statement as well made certain kinds of patterns much more convenient. And so that allowed some frameworks to shift and be designed in a different way. And then communities then take the combination of the language and the the framework and figure out what the best practices are and you get the books and you get the common knowledge of how to build and do things, right? And the patterns that are built on top. And so I think the exact same thing will happen with actors as well, where um, actors are a um, relatively straightforward um, language abstraction, but then there's a bunch of different patterns that you can build on top. Reliability is one of those, as you bring up. Do you want a whole chain of actors in this big graph that all comes crashing down. Um, what the ACA community has done is they've really focused on purely async actors where they never um, they never do the equivalent of a dispatch sync. And if you have a purely async actor, so all the actor methods are kind of fire and forget, there's no return values on them, you get some really exciting properties like, you know, if, if it's all fire and forget, then 
the actor can just go away. <laughs> and if the actor goes away, the messages sent to it just get dropped by the runtime. And then you don't have to have your whole graph crash down. Um, and you could actually even swap it out with a new replacement. You could reboot your actor or something like that. And so these are patterns, and I think these there are designs here that people should explore, but we can only really do that once um, the, the basics are in place. Right. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see a model where just like application developers today want to minimize um, mutable state, you might want to localize your uh, asynchronicity, right? So that you're not creating this interdependent mess of actors that's all depending on each other uh, to get anything done. If you follow this fire and forget or localizing asynchronicity, then you don't get into this uh, hairy ball that you have to disentangle to understand kind of how to make one part of your app more reliable. Um, interesting that uh, this will really be kind of on developers' hands to come up with the the right best practices or the community rather uh, best practices to to use this uh, for good and not you know get get stuck with maybe some anti patterns with it. Well, I think that that's that's a pretty common thing. I mean, I think we've seen that when when Swift, when Swift first came out and optionals were new the community spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out, okay, what is the right way to address certain problems? When is it okay to use a force unwrap or not? And there are different answers, right? Some some coding styles say never use force unwrap. Others say use it only in these specific situations, you know, or, or whatever. But um, it takes time for the community to figure that out. And there doesn't have to be one right answer. The good news here, though, again, is that the actors have been pretty popular in other communities. And so we can learn a lot from their successes and challenges and the patterns and the frameworks that they've built as well. And so um, just like when Swift was was new, a lot of people imported other other uh patterns that they've seen in other languages for functional programming, for example. Um, and I expect the same thing to happen. And that may be good, that may be bad, but it's inevitable. <laughs> Very cool. There's a few other sections to the manifesto uh, that are even more forward-looking. The The recording's already getting a little long. I don't know if Jesse... Why, has, why don't uh, I give you a brief a brief summary of it? So when, when you go down this line of thinking where you say um, actors are independently isolated units where you have one thread processing and you have asynchronous messages going in and out of it. Um, this starts to smell like a pattern we've seen before, which is you have separate processes that are talking to each other or separate network servers that are talking to each other over async message sends. And the, the cool thing about this is that if we follow this to its logical conclusion, and you build the right frameworks, then you say, okay, well, if a if you opt into having an actor be able to be distributed, that means it could be running on a remote in a remote process or on a remote machine, then all you need to do is make sure that the messages that get sent can be coded properly using codable. And if that's the case, then the language and the runtime and the framework can provide a pretty transparent way for you to say, okay, well, I've built my application, I've built and developed and debugged it as a single app. And I think this is more um, more important for client-server applications or maybe big cloud applications. But you say, I've, I've built this thing, but now I need to start distributing it so I can scale it better or so I can have better reliability for different pieces or so I can locate the computation next to the data or whatever these problems are that you're facing. And you should be able to do that without rewriting your whole app. <laughs> 
right? You shouldn't have to start dealing with JSON just because you move part of your computation to another machine. You shouldn't have to uh, deal with completely different language or a completely different set of tools in order to do that. And so actors provide a really natural abstraction for doing that. And um, with the right frameworks in place, you should be able to just say, okay, run this, you know, instead of just creating an actor locally, you would just create it using the, the right API and that would create it on a different machine. You're connected to it. You can still send messages and everything just composes properly. And I think this could be a huge sub function and productivity for um, building distributed applications because then as soon as you start building those applications, you want to be able to debug them and <laughs> all, the, all the same tooling problems come, come up and, um, you know, today we don't have a great way to say connect to all parts of my large distributed application and set a breakpoint in this actor. <laughs> that that that's not something that you can do. So that would be great to fix. Going beyond that, the proposal go, or the manifesto goes into talking about okay, well, when you go even farther, farther, farther into the future, there's a bunch of other things that might theoretically be interesting to look at, but it's quite blue sky at that point and that's kind of intentional the point is to show that there's a long runway and a lot of interesting open ideas that could be explored and when you get out to that step probably half of those don't make sense which is okay other ones might um but i think the whole rest of the manifesto is quite concrete and well-founded and based on existing practice in other systems yeah uh, you know one of the examples that you have in in that uh, crazy and brilliant future is talking about how um you could potentially send uh, GPU subcompute programs to like an external compute unit. And, um, you know, the current approach of doing this does seem pretty archaic, actually. Um, and so thinking of a way that you could sort of serialize a program, serialize an actor and send it over um, over the wire, over something else and, and perform it uh, elsewhere is kind of a beautiful, like you mentioned, blue sky picture, but uh, if we want to get there one day, we kind of have to start laying the groundwork today, I guess. Yeah, and if you extrapolate where hardware is going, we're seeing a lot more special purpose hardware come into the fray, which is really cool. Um, you know, GPUs are now pretty pretty well understood and have been around for many years, but we're getting, you know, Bitcoin miners and we're getting uh, deep learning accelerators and we're getting all kinds of things that um, are custom silicon because they can provide such a huge speed up on top of what a CPU can do. And having a way to be able to program all that, again, without having a, a weird menagerie of different tools and different systems and different, um, you know, different APIs is, would be a pretty big deal. And I think would help move the state of programming forward. Jesse, uh, any final questions for, for Chris or topics? Um, I don't think so. Uh... Well, huge thanks, Chris, for writing up uh, the manifesto and sharing your your thoughts and your rationale with us on the show. Uh, it's been an honor having you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really want to encourage people who care about concurrency and Swift to jump on to the Swift Evolution mailing list. That's where the discussion really should be. Um, I, one of the things I'm really happy about is we have so many great people in the community coming from different backgrounds and representing different experiences. And so I think that the only way we get to the right design for concurrency in Swift is by taking advantage of people with those different backgrounds and perspectives, because it's, you know, we, iOS development is something that's quite well understood in the community, but server development, other, other spaces are, 
you know, the, the next up and coming thing. And we want to make sure that they're really well supported and represented, even if the percentage of the community working on it is still somewhat smaller. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, you can catch the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. I'm at SimJP. And I'm uh, Jesse underscore Squires on Twitter. Chris, where can people find you? I'm C. Latner LVM. Uh, but you can also email me or email Swift Evolution. Thanks for listening. Thank you.